G'day, everyone. Jonathan Walsh here. Thanks for listening in to our Don the Stat end of season review. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Ian Hume. Humey, how are you going, mate? Yeah, pretty good over here. Just enjoying my last couple of days of paternity leave before heading back to work on Monday. And yeah, just, you know, reflecting at, at the end of the season. And obviously, when we started this podcast, it's not where we, we didn't want to be doing our end of season review, you know, as as the uh, Brisbane-Richmond final is uh, going on. Uh, for those of you listening afterwards, we're recording as that game's going. So ideally, we would we would still have match previews to do. But uh, despite that, we've got a lot to talk about tonight and really looking forward to getting stuck into it. How about yourself? Yeah, good, mate. So you're um, you're keeping up two kids at home to go and uh, look after you know twenty odd kids in a classroom. I uh, yeah, you're a, you're a braver man than me, mate. I don't know how you do that, but yeah, I'm going well. Uh, lots to keep me busy, work wise, and uh, we obviously had the interview last week with with Dr. Dan Eddy, who who gave up some time to chat to us, and really enjoyed that. And uh, one of our our rare editions that I've actually gone back and listened to. So yeah, if you uh, for those that are listening in. If you haven't had a chance to to listen to that one just yet, I, I do recommend going back to to listen in. I, it's one of the few episodes that we've done that I've actually gone and, and listened to myself. Uh, I don't typically like hearing my own voice, which might surprise some people. But, yeah, Dan, Dan was really um, generous with his time and, and he shared a lot of great stories, some of those that people will have heard already, uh, but a number of them that didn't make the the book or the, uh, the or any of his books and uh, as well as the documentary that people will have seen at the start of the year. So, yeah, I thought it was, it was yeah, a really captivating interview and, and loved every second of it. So if you haven't had a chance yet, uh, get back and, and watch or give it a listen. Uh, I guess the other big news for us of the week or for the club was the AFLW in their first game on Saturday night, mate. Did you... Get much of a chance to to take a look at that one. I did get to see the first quarter, and uh, unfortunately, I haven't had a chance to go back and watch it. But great to start with a win, obviously, and uh, you know, just play, playing at Marvel. I think I haven't watched too many AFLW games before this, but I think being being at Marvel and and, and being at that sort of stadium probably made it a better spectacle than than some of the outer grounds that that they've played AFLW at in the past. That helped, and well, I was probably the, the one thing that I, I drew from it was that that the the AFLW in that first quarter, at least for the, for Essendon, it seemed to be that they played almost the opposite of the men's side, where they were getting dominated at centre clearance, but they were able to uh, do a lot better at rebound footy. Whereas that the men's side this year was the opposite. Um, you did get to watch the whole game, and I think you even managed to sit down and watch the replay. What were your takeaways from that game? Yeah, I, I did. Um... Yeah, I, I didn't. Um, I, I didn't expect I'd be a replay watcher uh, once the men's team had gone out, but I, I really enjoyed it. I, I thought it was a great game of footy. Not not that that in itself surprised me, um, but yeah, you could tell that it meant a lot to both sides. It was a real. Yeah, uh, I think we've got a team that really values contested footy. You could see that there was a real um, intent to to be hard and physical and and win their own ball. And I thought their link up play. It was well. It was great to watch, but ultimately the difference between the two sides, we were just a lot cleaner at the ball and were able to to move the ball a lot faster and, and get it deeper inside our forward fifty. So, yeah, really enjoyed it, mate. It was great to see the passion. It's great to see a big crowd there. Uh, I'm really looking forward to to watching them as the season unfolds. Absolutely, absolutely. It'll be good to good to see them again this weekend and again, you know, just just more Essendon content and another team for us to to love 
um, as, hopefully as much as we do the men's side in, in the coming years. Obviously, there was a lot more uh, news around the club, around around the external review and the announcement of the the coaching panel and the and the external review process. And so, for those who haven't uh, been across it, it's, it's been widely reported. But the coaching panel is going to be made up of uh, Josh Marnie, who will be chairing it, uh, Simone McInnes, uh, OAM, who has a netball background, uh, Andrew Thorburn, who comes from NAB, uh, club director Dorothy Hisgrove. Um, and then uh, the football people that probably people would most recognise would be uh, Robert Walls and Jordan Lewis. And that'll be accompanied by a uh, comprehensive review of the club structure by Ernst and Young. Let's work closely with the acting CEO, Nick Ryan, uh, and Dorothy Hisgrove will also be working uh, closely with that, uh, trying to uh, work out what it is about the Essendon culture and, and people that needs to improve in order to become a successful club. Now, with your background, uh, your, your work background, you probably have a better understanding of what this means than what I do. So what have been your takeaways from the announcement of the review and, and the people involved? Yeah, I think a few things, mate. I, I think the first thing was the clarity in the communication. So, uh, you know, we've been a club, uh, especially this year, that's really gone away from keeping their members informed. And, and that's been a real frustration of the supporter group. So I think that was the first thing. It was it was really thorough, uh, but at the same time, it didn't use buzzwords. It was, you know, it was to the point. It, it covered off on the, on the most important things. So I, I really, I thought that was a real tick for, you know, first, I think, real test of, of Dave Barham's reign was to, to re-engage the supporter base and get them on side. And I think he he's achieved that with not just what was communicated, but the the effectiveness in how they did that. So I thought that was was really good. I think the the people, I mean, I don't know a lot about a number of them. And I understand, you know, Andrew Thorburn was the person who was involved in the Banking Royal Commission. And, you know, there were some not too pleasant things said about him. Um, in the findings of that, but I think the reality in this uh, situation is to have someone who's who's been a CEO of a, a major bank. Uh, it, we're not bringing him in to run a bank. We're we're bringing him in to help advise on what board structures should look like, on what executive structures should look like, on leadership values, those kind of things. So I think he's going to have a lot to value. We've obviously outsourced to EY and, and got them involved, uh, and, and you know they've got tremendous experience in doing these kinds of things. And I think Dorothy Isgrove's got an interesting role to play. Um, I like that there's a crossover between the the football subcommittee and the and the review, um, the club review committee. So I think I think Dorothy's got a, an interesting role to play. Uh, she's not a she didn't grow up as an essence supporter. She was a Collingwood supporter and became a member and joined the board. Uh, so she's she's not tied to the the old Essen way, I guess, and and obviously has a lot of business experience that I think can that can add. I mean, this this is what she does and has done for a, a profession. So I think that uh, is a really beneficial skill set. And then in terms of the coaching subcommittee, I guess there were a few eyebrows raised. The first one was was Josh Marnie and what that means for his tenure. I, I guess ultimately the external review will determine that. And for now, there really had to be someone on the football department. Rep, uh, as a representative on the panel uh, and and to, I guess, to chair and coordinate things. Um, so, yeah, Josh is the person that has been appointed to that, I guess, in many ways that that makes sense. Um, Robert Walls, 
raised a lot of eyebrows. I, I think people need to keep in mind that he did keep, he did grow up an Essen supporter and, and Ken Fraser was his hero growing up and, and the person that he modelled his game on. And I know, I know that's a long time and there's been a lot of water under the bridge, but I don't buy into some of the things that he said about Essen. And a lot of that was, you, you know, banter and him and Sheeds trying to talk up a rivalry and, and get, you know, front page news and, and those kind of things that, uh, uh, I don't think it's something that should worry people. Uh, uh, and I think our new coach, whoever that ends up being, it's going to be important that they embrace the history of our club and the people that that have been there and done that and connect our playing group to our past. I, I think that was something that Ben Rutten really did try hard to do. In fact, um, uh, Dan Eddy made mention of that when we spoke to him last week. Uh, so, yeah, and I think Robert Walls will is someone who really understand that uh, and and add some value that way. And I think people also need to know and understand that he's got a long-standing relationship with Dave Barham. So I think any suggestion that he's going to come in and do a hatchet job just out of spite because he hates Essendon, I, you know, that's not one that I agree with. I don't think he's going to uh, jeopardise his own reputation. He's not going to jeopardise his relationship with Dave Barham. And, and I, think, I think his experience um, can add a lot of value. And then... Similar vein of thought, I think a lot of people were concerned about Jordan Lewis. But, uh, yeah, he went through the Hawthorne rebuild as a player, came in at a young age and, and went through that really successful period uh, at the Hawks. And then he was part of the Melbourne rebuild at the later part of his career. He, he went in there, I guess, as a, a senior leader and, and mentor and, and part of the team that, that got to that prelim in 2018 before they, they sort of went backwards before going forwards again and he's got a really good understanding of the modern game and again he's you know he's someone who's making a career out of football he, his reputation is on the line he's not going to go in and jeopardize that by you know trying to to undermine it undermine the club Essendon as a club over recent history has done a good enough job on its own in making poor appointments I don't think we need to uh to to get someone like Robert Walls or Jordan Lewis on a committee to do that for us. So I, I think that, yeah, both are, are good steps in the right direction. Um, I like the diversity, um, the diversity of football experience, the diversity of gender, I think is really important. Uh, and and then the the various levels of leadership and, and business. I think the Simone McInnes one is a really inspiring choice given her background uh, in netball and, and, and coaching there, uh, I think is a, a really good choice. So, you know, we don't have any idea who was or wasn't available to us, but on the surface, I, I really like what uh, Dave Barham and, and what's left of his board have put together. Well well said. I've got nothing to add to that. You've, you've gone through that in, in quite uh, significant detail there. So, yeah, obviously we won't understand the full ramifications of that for a couple of years to come. But as, as you say, uh, the, the early signs are good that the, it's a, a comprehensive review with with people who will take it seriously, uh, and be able to put the best the best fo- best ideas forward for the future of the Essendon Football Club. And before we get on to our review proper, uh, as always at this time of year, that the trade rumors start coming out, and probably the most high profile one for Essendon fans was the news that it sounds like Connor McKenna is going to return to the AFL, and I think for a lot of a lot of Essendon fans, particularly if you remember back to t- 2019, Connor McKenna running off halfback, some of the things he was doing there how much we'd love to have that sort of player back in the side. But uh, again, you know, how much you, how much you read into these, you know, is up to you. But the reports, early reports suggest that it's, it's Brisbane and Geelong that are leading the race for his signature. Do you think Essendon should be going hard to try and get McKenna back 
uh, into the side, or is it someone? Is he a sort of a luxury player we can't really afford at this stage? Uh, look, I don't think he's a luxury player that we can't afford. It, it does sound like you said. I mean, how much weight do you give to any story this time of year? I think the real answer is not much, but. The rumor mill is suggesting that if he does come back, it it won't be to Essendon. Uh, I'm I'm okay with that. I think on paper he does add something that we lack, but I think at a time where we're really trying to increase, or we we really need to increase the professionalism and and drive higher standards, I'm not sure he's someone that fits into that category. And if he's going to come back, uh, you know, as a what is he 26, 27. Uh, he's going to want to be on on some decent coin. I, I'd rather we we go and find someone or or, or a couple of players that are going to be able to add real leadership, and uh, and you know I'd I'd rather get some games into some some of the you know D'Ambrosio and Alistair Lord and, and these kind of kids in that position. You know they've got the the raw attributes that Connor's got, uh, and then use that cap space to to bring in some real leaders that are going to help the coaching group drive those standards that they're ultimately going to be trying to implement. I, I don't think Connor McKenna's got that in his DNA, so I'm okay with him going elsewhere, uh, fully knowing that he's going to end up having, you know, 30 disposals and getting three Brownlow votes against us when I say that. But, um, but yeah, I, I ultimately, I, I don't think he's for us right now. Yeah, I, I, that's the sort of opinion that I've come to as well, not, Overly fussed. If he, if he comes back, fantastic. I think it probably sends a, a bit of a warning side to Nick's Hine, Nick Hines' career if McKenna does come back. But again, I don't see it being the key difference that, that fixes Essendon, as we've sort of discussed over the last few weeks, is a lot more structural uh, and behind the scenes problems than, than simply, you know, trading in good players is going to fix. The other one that came out today was uh, the news that Francis and Ham are seemingly attracting interest from other clubs or, or wanting trade-outs, particularly in the case of Francis. Obviously, both are, um, both are uncontracted at this stage, and we, we did discuss the uncontracted players uh, last week. I sort of said Francis was, was sort of 50-50 on whether we, we try and keep him, and Ham, I was surprised, wasn't an early delisting, but uh, I think the fact that it came out that it does seem like there are people who are interested in him suggests why that he wasn't part of that first uh, round of delistings. And, uh, you know, I think obviously, particularly for someone like Francis, top draft pick, everyone, everyone's had a lot of hopes for. Um, I don't think people should be expecting a whole, you know, a very high draft pick for him. And at the end of the day, I think we potentially are using those people trading them out to get third or fourth round picks in that can be used uh, to cover a bid on Alwyn David Jr., who particularly in the case of Ham is, is going to be an upgrade on that player there. What were your thoughts? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I wasn't surprised. We spoke about both of these guys last week. Um, you know, I think the the writing was on the wall for Francis when him and Stewart effectively were, were swapped in their positions, weren't they? Uh, we had Francis uh, go from the forward line to the back line, Stewart from the back line to the forward line, and Stewart ended up getting games in the seniors as a forward. And then we had the emergence of BCT come from sort of come from the clouds. And, and hold down a spot in our back line for what was it, the last eight or so weeks and, and did really well and improved out of sight. So, and then you've got the, the potential of, of Zach Reed as a, as a key defender too. So, you know, you kind of got a question where Aaron Francis would fit in all of that and, and it suggests he's well down the pecking order. So I'm not surprised that he's going to look for options elsewhere. Uh, you know, I think he's got enough talent that he's worth someone taking a punt on. 
Uh, and hopefully he realizes that talent. I, I think he's going to be one of those that's probably never going to play his best football with us and, and should look to find it elsewhere. Uh, and you're right. You know, if we can get a pick that helps us get some points, then I think that will be useful. And then, yeah, I think I mentioned it last week when, when you raised Ham as someone who you were a bit surprised hadn't been delisted yet. I, I'm not surprised that there's interest in him. I, I do think he could be a good role player in the right team. Uh, I think he can really run both ways and, and he can kick the ball. I know he's got some limitations in his game. He's, he's not physical enough. He, he's not contested enough. But, um, yeah, I, I think in the right system, he could still be an effective player. And, and he's someone that, that, yeah, again, we might be able to get some pick points for and, and use those to, to get um, Alwyn and his brother. Yeah, and uh, just didn't didn't write this down, but I think it was confirmed this week that Stewart had got a two year deal as well. When you when you brought him up, it, it uh, twigged in my mind that that had happened. So, and we we sort of talked about that when that was first raised. That that's a pretty sound uh, that's a pretty sound list decision, and that he would he would attract attention from other clubs, and that's why you would need to give him two years. Yeah, it, I mean, we don't have enough senior age players on our list at the moment, so he's one that. Uh, by all reports, is a is quite a likable guy. His uh, his standards are, are reasonable. He's he can play both ends. So uh, you know he's he's probably not going to be in our best twenty two, but he gives us an op- an option to to come in and play at either ends either end when we need it to to fill a hole. And I think that's important. Absolutely. All right. So we're going to get into the season review now, which will be the bulk of the show and. I, when we were planning this out a few weeks ago and what, what we were looking at doing and what, what needed to happen in order for us to improve next year, we're, we're working under the assumption that Rutten would still be coach. And, you know, so you can build, you can build on that and, and what you saw the previous, previous year, year and the years before and, and sort of work out a pathway forward that with the hunt for a new coach, it throws a lot of what we discuss up into the air because we don't know where the new leadership is going to want to take the club. So the game style of a Ross Lyon is going to be very different to that of an, an Adam Uze or a Don Pike or whoever else eventually succeeds as coach. So a lot of what we're going to discuss uh, for the rest of this show is going to be more hypothetical than anything and, and just sort of doing some bro- some broader strokes of where we, what we think happened this year and, and where we can move forward from that. So I guess we'll reflect back on our, our mid-season predictions, which we did after the Port game. And so uh, Jono actually got exactly right with the amount of wins that we would would have with, with seven, where I, I was a bit more pessimistic and said six. So well done, the Jono there with his uh, Nostradamus prediction there. Were you surprised yeah. that you were right? Or <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not often right, but uh, yeah, I think when I made that prediction. Uh, the mix of wins was different to what I, I thought. I, I, you know, you and I did talk at the time that we'd saw some improvement around our, our effort and our contested work at, at that point in time, and that hadn't really culminated in wins. But I thought that some wins were around the corner from us. So yeah, I, I ultimately thought that we'd probably get wins against the Eagles and the Giants, which were games that we dropped. Uh, and I didn't think we'd get a win up in Brisbane or or against the Swans either. So, you know, yeah, uh, I mean, it is what it is at the end end of the year. But yeah, I, I wasn't overly surprised with how it played out because I think at that last couple of weeks of leading into the the mid season break, there was a little bit of sign that we'd started to turn a bit of a corner. Yeah, and it sort of 
leads into what, what we talked about next, which was what were the things we wanted to see for the rest of the season. And again, the idea behind this was that this would then build onto the, the futures, future seasons and with Rutten gone, again, a lot of that's thrown out the window. But uh, we wanted to have another 11 games to refine our defensive press. And up until that GWS game, that had actually been working to some extent. The, the defensive actions and and the structure had in, had improved. Is that is that your interpretation of what you saw across those weeks? Yeah, well, I think we'd improved our our scores against or or points against by you know the best part of you know almost four goals a game. So I think that's that's a, a sign that that we were you know defending the ground better. We were able to put more pressure on the opposition. Our, our turnovers against were, were up. Our intercepts were, were improved for, uh, you know, right up until that. I mean, it, there was even a fall away in that North game, wasn't there, um, to an extent. But uh, we were still able to get the job done. But, yeah, uh, up until those last two games, I, I thought there was some some real improvement there. Yeah, and then also it was around that time that uh, Harry Jones came back in. We wanted to get games since the Wright-Jones combination which we did. Uh, I'm not necessarily sure we saw much in the way of improvement of them working together uh, across the remainder of the, of the season. It did seem to have sort of stagnated from the previous season. And obviously a lot of that came down to the fact that uh, it did seem that Harry Jones was, you know, playing under a bit of duress with, with injury, um, couldn't quite get up to the level that he was the previous year. And then it sat out the last couple of games there. So, I mean, more games into Harry Jones is, is obviously a good thing. Um, but, yeah, what were your thoughts yeah, on that? Uh, two things happened. There was another thing that happened when Jones came back into the side, and that was Stringer came back in as well. So, it was that that Carlton game was the first our first game after the mid-season break, and we only scored 54 points in that game. So, it, it wasn't a great example. We did we did restrict Carlton to, to 80, which was an improvement on, on where we had been. I think leading... Leading into that game, we conceded 90 points. You, you know, so up until the mid-season break, we conceded 90 or more in a game. Uh, I think it was it ended up being like eight out of the 11 games, give or take. Uh, so to to reduce the team down to 80 was a step forward. Uh, we only scored 54 ourselves, but we then started to get some continuity into the group, and uh, and you know from that Carlton game to the North Melbourne game, we averaged 93 points a game. I think Jones only had the two games maybe where he he didn't score, didn't kick a goal. I think that was the Carlton game and and up against GWS in round 21. So I think, uh, yeah, I think we did, whilst we didn't see Jones kick big bags, we didn't even see Peter Wright really kick massive bags either. We did see a better performance from our forwards. We, We only scored... Uh, 90 plus points three times in the first half of the year, and we scored 90 plus points six times. I think one, two, three, four, five, six. Yeah, in between rounds 14 and rounds 20. So yeah, I think we we did see some signs that that having a forward line built around Wright, Jones, and Stringer uh, has some potency. Uh, obviously, we we really lacked at ground level, which is something we'll talk about uh, in a little while. Yeah. Absolutely. And then there was the look to get more midfield minutes into the younger younger players, so Perkins, Hobbs, and Caldwell. Of those, probably only Caldwell really got those those extra midfield minutes. I think both of us were quite frustrated with the lack of trust that the the coaches had in Hobbs and Perkins, particularly in the center bounces in that second half 
of the year. Obviously, Perkins had that interruption, uh, that the four or five game interruption, which he missed with with injury, that probably meant that when he did come back, you know, he was he didn't have the fitness base to do it. But for both of us, it was seen as a bit of a missed opportunity, not to at least give them more of a crack there. Uh, but obviously, Caldwell, you know, from the Brisbane game in particular onwards, really sh- showed an extra string to his bow and has you know really been one of the highlights of the year in my view. Yeah, I, I don't know if it was by good fortune or or good or by design in in Caldwell's case, but he's obviously a player that's had a lot of injuries, a lot of soft tissue injuries early in his career. So I wonder whether they did use the first half of the year just to build him up. And if that was the case, you can sort of understand why he wasn't getting a lot of midfield minutes. And then he had that really breakout game against Lockie Neal, where he was able to restrict Neal's influence. And then also was able to to get plenty of the ball himself and kick that last quarter goal that that you know kind of put a bit of a stamp on things. Uh, and then he you know took Miller the following week. He did a really good job there. Um, Pendlebury against the Pies. He did a really good job there. And then uh, North Melbourne game. I think from memory he got subbed off, didn't he? He he got injured. Uh, but yeah, he he's one that I guess did did get that extra midfield minutes on the on the run home. But certainly wasn't the case for Perkins and Hobbs and. Uh, yeah, Perkins, as you mentioned, did get injured. Hobbs, you know, that he was out and then in and then out and then in. And it was a little bit of a weird finish to the season for him in how they used him. I think we did, the coaches really missed a trick in, in not allowing him to play more midfield time. And, and I think we, we go into next season having learned that Hobbs is a really talented young player. He's added some strings to his bow, which I think was important for him. But we haven't learned much about him as the midfielder. So uh, I think we, we definitely missed a trick there. And, uh, and then, you know, just to round out the, the last point that we were looking to see was a bit of an opportunity to see Merritt on the outside a bit more often. We started to see that post-buy. You know, you think of the Sydney game where he played half forward a fair bit, kicked, I think kicked three goals in that game. Uh, he started to play the Stringer handover role for a period of time. So Stringer would start in the centre bounce. Zach would start forward and then they kind of moved through in traffic. And he started to be really effective by foot. And then, uh, you know, last couple of games, we just reverted back to Merritt, Shield, Perk, uh, sorry, Merritt, Shield, Parrish, as our, and then Caldwell as our primary mids and didn't really rotate. And um, we went away from that. So, yeah, we, I think we saw, saw it in parts, but I, I would have liked to have seen it a bit more. Yeah. And I mean, again, you know, this would be interesting to see what the new coach's philosophy is and, and who we pick up will play a big part in, in how that plays out. Next year, I guess just moving on, we we talked about who was enhancing their reputation, and uh, at the time, uh, I think I brought up Guelphie, Wright, and Redmond as having up to the halfway mark of the season, um, having advanced their reputations. And I don't think uh, any of those players did anything in the second half to take away um, that that position that I had. They all they all had excellent years, probably career best years uh, for all of them. Is there anyone else that you want to add to that list that, that maybe uh, caught your eye, you would say, has had an enhanced reputation? Obviously, you, we're not talking about new players. You know, so, yeah, Nick Martin, you know, enhanced his reputation, but he was, he was coming off nothing. Uh, who, 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 Which of the previous players for you um, enhanced their reputation the most? Yeah, I've left all of the young guys out of this. So, even the sort of second-year players as well. So, you know, uh, someone like Caldwell, for example, um, you know, Durham, we, we've seen develop. But I think the, there's there's a couple for me. One um, that probably went under the radar a little bit, and, and I probably underrated 
unfairly at times as well was Andrew Phillips. I think the role that he played when we were playing our best footy was really important. He, I, I think he really helped Draper elevate his game and, and he was really combative. He, again, he, he had some experience, even though he's only played the I think 62 games, uh, he's been in the system for a long time. So I think he enhanced his, uh, not necessarily his football ability reputation, but certainly his reputation in regards to his importance to our playing group and, and to our list. Uh, so he was one, but the other one I think was Brandon Zirk Thatcher. Yeah, he he really did come from the clouds. He was a player that uh, I'm assuming our our club valued enough to give him two years when a lot of people thought that he might have just been delisted uh, or, you know, on the scrap heap or, or maybe just given one to get him through. But the, the club obviously saw something in him and, and kept him around. And, and when he did come back in, his last, you know, six or eight weeks or, or however many it was were, were sensational and, and, you know, really, uh, really did contest really hard. He was prepared to put himself in dangerous positions and, and get himself knocked around. He became a lot more assured with ball in hand as well. He was a bit of a panic merchant at times early in his career. So I think for him, he's we haven't seen this happen a lot, uh, unfortunately, over the last you know, probably 10 or 15 years, but he was a player that really did benefit from going back to the VFL at a time where we had fewer injuries. So there were a few more experienced bodies around. He played some really good footy. He was consistently in the best, came back into the side at, at a time when people were probably expecting we would just play Zach Reed to, to get some experience into him. They went with Sir Thatcher again, uh, sorry, instead. And, and he played some brilliant footy and, and, you know, would ha- be hard-pressed to, to not find himself in the side come round one next year, you know, all things being equal over the pre-season. Yeah, that, he definitely enhanced his reputation in my mind. And I think, as you say, I think people you went went from, oh, no, Zerk Thatcher's got the ball to, oh, good, Zerk Thatcher's got the ball or he's near it. Some of these spoils in particular were, were outstanding, just the way he was able to uh, move his body to, to spoil balls that he had no no realistic um, option of getting to, or at least you thought so, you know, and it just showed, sort of showed his confidence, as he said, built up in the VFL, which highlights what a VFL program should do and, and you'd hope would be able to do for more of our players. I guess the other, the flip side of, of who enhanced their reputations is who's in trouble. And I think the two that come to mind are Snelling and Hind. Uh, Snelling obviously missed the first half of the season, and then when he came back, really struggled. Uh, you probably you probably got the impression that, uh, given he, he was a, a a favorite of Ben Rutten, he was probably got a lot more rope in terms of his performances than another player would. Uh, but we we missed what Snelling did in 2021 this year, and yeah, I, th- I think he's in a bit a bit more trouble uh, going into next year. Obviously, if he if he comes back fully fit, then there's, there's obviously a role for him in the side, but other players could go past him there. And then the other one is Nick Hind. I think what 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 Nick Hind did well last year, he wasn't doing as well this year, and his flaws really were shown up a lot more this year, uh, particularly defensively. What were your thoughts on those two? Was there anyone else you think is in a bit of trouble? Obviously, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we've already made some deep listings, haven't we? So, uh, you know, the, if we had a gone through this exercise a week ago, there would have been a few more on, on the list. But I, I in this case, I think you've nailed it. I think they are the main two that are going to be, uh, you know, in the most trouble in terms of, of getting games next year. I think they're both going to need to have big pre-seasons. I, I think 
Snelling enhanced his reputation off the back of finishing in the top three in the best and fairest in 2021, playing a role that obviously the, that coaching group, which isn't going to be there anymore next year, at least the senior coach won't, uh, playing a role that they they valued. And that role was, was uh, the half forward rolling up as an extra midfielder effectively. So he, he played without an opponent for most of the game. What we did see, which wasn't his fault, it was the way that our coaches allowed the games to unfold was that on a regular basis, really good halfback flankers would tear us apart. You think of, you know, in 2021, the game Saad had against us, uh, you know, both times against GWS, they had a swarm of, of halfback flankers really, um, really take us apart. I, you know, you go through a lot of those close losses we had in 2021 and and often, you know, in the opposition's best two or three players was a, a really good user at halfback who who the coaches allowed to effectively play without an opponent because they were rolling Snelling up as an extra to contest. So that's a role that that disappeared this year for most of the season. Um, Hobbs and Martin at times, et cetera, did play high half forward roles, but not as a, a an extra at a contest. They they would they would sit out or they would exchange with a winger. We had coverage and, and didn't allow that loose dropping off as often. So that role doesn't exist anymore. That role that he built his reputation on is not a role that most teams are, are, are running with. You, you know, you, it's certainly not something that you'll see much of in the final series. So, uh, and then he comes in and plays as a small forward and played, what was it, eight games or something in the end and, and didn't kick a goal. So I think that that's a pretty damning result for him and, and he's going to need to to really have a big se- preseason. Maybe get the miles in his legs to become a midfielder and, and, and play in the VFL in, in that position and, and and try and add some strings to his bow that way, or he's going to have to play as a forward and, and find a way to get creative and hit the scoreboard. And then, yeah, Nick Hind, I think we just saw him make too many mistakes, didn't we, uh, uh, both defensively and offensively. We saw uh, D'Ambrosio come in and, and really show us his wares with ball in hand and, and, and his foot skills. Uh, he's obviously got a lot of developing to do. Seem well, new coach again. So who knows what happens with McGrath? He he might change positions again, but let's assume he's back. And then Redmond, um, as you mentioned, was one who really enhanced his reputation this year. So you know, there's potentially three halfback, you know, small defenders there that that are ahead of him in the pecking order. So yeah, I think he does have some work to do. And uh, I think if I'm really blunt and honest, for us to be a really, really good football side and playing finals football, uh, I don't think those two are going to be in our best 22. We're going to need to have guys go past them. Yeah, I think I think that's a fair a fair call. The other one that a lot of people probably would bring up is, is Heppel. Uh, I think Heppel's... We've, we've talked a lot about Heppel and his role. I think we've both got him as a, as a keep at the club, whether that's in the best 22 or not is, is more debatable, but... We, we want to see him around it. And that's more just the sort of decline that you get at his age with his injury history. You know, it's not necessarily a massive decline um, compared to the, the players we just spoke about. Yeah, I, I think that's right, mate. I, I think we we need to keep him for, for experience. And I think, we, you know, we, we're going to have a look at what a best 22 for next year might look like. But I think the reality is we don't have one at the moment. We've, we've probably got a best 10. 
and then a lot of positions up for grabs and, you know, Heppel's probably one that fits into that based on form and fitness and, and those kind of things. Yeah. Well, let's look at, let's look at the, the results and, and some of the stats there. And I think compared to last year, obviously I think it's been well documented that we we've had a harder draw this year. It's been pointed out with, we've, being one of the, the teams that's played the most top eight sides. We had 12 games against the eventual top eight, uh, which was the equal most in the competition. If you look at our results, though, we actually had more wins against top eight sides this year than we did last year when we made the finals. So we only had the one last year, which was against the Bulldogs, whereas this year we, we defeated both Sydney and Brisbane. There were a couple of strong performances. So obviously, the second Sydney game is a really quality result. Uh, I also think the uh, St Kilda game was a strong result. They were six when Essendon played them. They, the first half of the season, they were quite a strong side. Uh, no, they, they faded away towards the end there, but I, I have that as a, as a really strong result. The one that's probably up in the air is the Brisbane performance, given what they had in terms of COVID and, and injuries just before the game. Do you could still consider that to be a, a strong performance by Essendon? Yeah, I, I do, mate, for a few reasons. They... They still had the bulk of their midfield and their best midfielders available as well as their forward line intact. And, and they're their two strengths. Their, their defence, I know they had a lot of outs. Some of those outs were to players that were on the fringe anyway. Uh, so I, I think when you look at the quantity, it's a bit overstated. Uh, but their defence was already pretty weak. Uh, granted, it got weaker. But, you know, they, they still had, yeah, as I mentioned, their mids and their forwards out. We locked down on Neil, as we've already spoken about. Caldwell went to him and stopped his impact. And, you know, that's the first time. It, it feels like he would just get 40 disposals against us for fun. Uh, so, yeah, we were able to do that. We're still younger and less experienced than them. And and we were away from home. They were playing to try and keep a, a spot in the top four. And, you know, ultimately, they've, they've ended up finishing uh, outside of the top four. So that was a really important game for them. And, and for us, it, it you know, it didn't mean a lot. So, yeah, I, it wasn't pretty. We didn't play that well, but I do think it was still a, a strong win and, and an important one uh, for our, you know, for the for the young group to go away from home and, and win interstate, I think is important. You know, we go into next year, you know, we had a nightmare against the Giants, but we go into next year with a bit of a, uh, you know, the experience of having one away from home against a good side. And I think that's important. Yeah, absolutely. I think in contrast, though, if, you, if you're comparing 2021 to 2022, the what I consider to be horror horror show performances, uh, there was there was twice as many this year. So I think if you go back and consider the results from 2021, you, you're looking at the Port game, uh, the Brisbane game, although that was in the wet, and then maybe the Geelong game after after quarter time is what you would consider to be a, a really poor performance from from that side. Whereas this this year you have six that you can really easily say we're, we're absolute, you know, dogs breakfast in terms of performances, so obviously starting with the Geelong game. Then it was the Fremantle game, particularly after half halftime, uh, the, the first Swans game, uh, the second half of the Giants, and then the final two games of, of Port and Port 2 and then Richmond 2. Um, really, really terrible performances that, you know, at the, at the end of the day, you know, kill, we're, we're coach killers and, you know, we're, we're having to embark on a, a different, a different track than we otherwise thought we were going to be at the start of the year. Yeah, it's spot on. I think we've said this before, man. It's it's not uh, for me at least. It wasn't the number of losses that we had this year. It was the uh, yeah. It, it was 
that was how poor we were in in a number of those losses. So yeah, all all of those games that that you mentioned, we just weren't we weren't competitive for long enough, and and when it got hot, we just really fell away. And and I think that's yeah, that ultimately was pretty damning. So I think <laughs> what was really frustrating about this year was that there was a lot of really good stuff. Uh, I, I feel like the gap between our best and our worst actually got better, but our uh, sorry got bigger. Uh, but compared to 2021, our, our best got better and our worst got worse, which is, um, yeah, really, really frustrating. Yeah. I think you can divide this, this, the season into sort of three sections and it's sort of, it's sort of structured around the internal review, the, the infamous internal review that, that sort of broke the club apart right at the end there. But there's obviously rounds one to nine, which is Geelong to the first Swans game. And it's after that Swans game that the internal review was announced. Uh, then you have rounds 10 to 20, uh, which is what we would consider to be the, the good period, which was the first Richmond game uh, to the North Melbourne game, which is after which the internal review was submitted to the board. And then you have the, the final three rounds, which is, which is what I consider to be part three, which is the internal review fallout where a lot of behind the scenes stuff at the club really sort of prevented uh, the season finishing on a strong note. The, the divisions in the club in in the back room sort of f- uh, flowed through to to the players and 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 their levels of effort. So that, that that's really how I see the season in three parts. And just one of the, one of the things we've been really strong on over the past ten weeks is c- comparing where we were, you know, in the first half of the season to the to the second half. And just we've been keeping a, a close eye on the stats. And so just comparing the part one to part two, which I think the, is the most important in terms of moving forward, looking at our worst to our best. Uh, in part one, you know, we were 16th for scores against and we'd improve that to ninth in part two. Um, inside 50s, 15th to 11th in, in that second part. Uh, inside 50s against 14th to third. So really strong defensively in terms of restricting inside 50s, although we we probably were allowing a lot more scores from inside 50s. We're allowing inside 50s in better positions, which is where you see the discrepancy between uh, inside 50s against versus scores against. Uh, center clearance differential, uh, 12th became 6th. Uh, uh, contested possession differential went from 16th to 6th. Um, tackle differential went from the differential went from 12th, but we were 18th for total tackles, uh, went to first overall. So we had the best tackle differential in the competition between rounds 10 and 20. And then the inside 50 tackle differential, uh, 12th, uh, for, 12th for that first part and then fourth for this for the second part. Uh, I consider part three a write-off after the internal review uh, was submitted and, and those divisions came in. So it's really just comparing those part one and two there. Any, any thoughts on those stats before we we start looking at what it means to be a premiership side? No, I, I think that, uh, you know, we don't have access to a lot of the, the more sophisticated metrics that, uh, you know, get brought up on on some of the football programs and, and in the media. So we're going off some some base metrics that, that we do have access to and we've tracked throughout the season. I think they're all, they're all important ones. They talk a lot about, you know, your ability to win the ball at the contest, your ability to, to get the ball inside 50 and score and your ability to, to restrict the opposition, put pressure on them and, and restrict scores. And, you know, we, over that period of time, it's only 10 weeks. The season does go for 22 games. But, you know, in those key metrics, we were, you know, in the upper echelon for a, a lot of them, not all of them, but, but a number of them. And, and I think that's a good indicator of a, of a list that was, uh, you know, this was the second least experienced list or second youngest 
list in the competition or at least in terms of the, the 22 that, or 23 that went out to play each week. So, uh, yeah, I think that 10-week block should be something that we can pin some hope on that we do have a, an underlying group of players that that have enough talent to, to take us forward. Still a lot of work to do from a list management perspective. But, yeah, I think, uh, I think it is important to to try and look at this season in the three parts to try and make sense of things. And yeah, I, I agree with, yeah, pretty much everything you've said there, mate. Yeah. And so just, just sort of moving on, one of the things I, I wanted to look at uh, towards the end of this year was what, what are the metrics of a premiership side and what are, what are some of the things that are consistent between premiership sides over the years? So I've looked back to 2015, which is the final, uh, Hawks premiership of that three-peat. Um, as, as, you, as you'd imagine, there's quite a lot of variance because teams play in different styles and the way the way the game goes obviously changes over, over periods of time. But a, f- a few things stood out in terms of being really consistent across all, all sides. And this includes the Bulldogs. So if you go look at the Bulldogs metrics, they're, they're wildly different to uh, the teams either side of them. I think they're a bit of a bit of a fluke, the Bulldogs premiership, the lightning in a bottle sort of thing that, you know, I don't necessarily think is is something to be trying to emulate, but even then, they they still hit these they still hit these metrics. So the four the four key metrics I think to suggest whether or not you're a premiership side based on the stats, you need to have 15 wins in a season. Uh, you need to have a top four defense. You need a top four intercepts differential. So that means you in terms of how many more intercepts you're getting than your opposition. And then you need to be top five for marks inside 50. Now, just for those of you uh, listening at home want to know who you should be tipping for the for the uh, premiership this year, the only two sides uh, that meet those metrics this year are Geelong and Melbourne. So uh, not exactly going out on a limb saying that either of those sides are going to be the premiers, but in terms of those metrics, those are the two sides that that meet that across all four of those. But there's just a bit, just in terms of future future planning, projecting forward, Obviously, the game goes in trends and, and waves and, and what is a good metric now may not be a, a good metric where we're um, next contending for a flag. There's every chance that whoever our new coach is is able to take the game in an unexpected direction, you know, really be that leader rather than trying to refine what's what's come before. So, but this is just to sort of reflect on uh, what you need to do in order to be a premiership side under current conditions. So, what are, you, what are your thoughts on those stats? There? Yeah, I, I think you're right in terms of you know the game going in trends and and things changing, but I think the, the those I mean wins speaks for itself. Obviously, you've, you've got to win enough games to to you know uh, Bulldogs being the exception and and you know Crows the in '97 the only other one uh, in recent years. Uh, well, even then, get- even then the Bulldogs still won 15 games in, in that season. Yeah, just, fair, it was just it was just a really competitive top seven. Yeah, and they you know they they were fifteenth, but oh sorry they were they were seventh, but they had fifteen wins, so it was it yeah. was quite a that was just out by percentage, and obviously they they had a hot hand in the finals. Yeah, so in in most other years though that that gets them into the top four, doesn't it? So yeah, yeah, you got to get enough wins to to be there. So so that speaks for itself. But in terms of the other three, I guess the the defense metrics points against again you know speaks for itself. If you can if you can top, stop the opposition for score from scoring or, or limit their ability to score, you you're halfway there. So I think in in any era, uh, scores against you know being one of the better sides in, in that is 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 a bit of an obvious one. I think intercepts differential is is important always because it tells a story of your ability to to a maintain possession when you're you've got it 
and then also win the ball back from from the opposition and be able to put enough pressure on them and set up the ground to be able to get the ball back off them. So I think that one, you know, holds up. And then Mark's inside 50, I think, tells a lot about how your forward line functions as a, as a forward six. Because, uh, uh, you know, gone are the days where you see lots of big contested pack marks inside your 50. More often than not, it's it's one-on-ones, players on the lead, um, players, you know, getting into space and and, and falling into holes. Uh, so it talks a lot about how your forward line works as a as a unit. It's, it's no longer about, you know, Matthew Lloyd kicking 100 and, and Scott Lucas kicking 70. It's contributions across uh, and real spread. So I think Mark's inside 50 talks to that, but it also talks to your your connection between your half-back line and, and your mids and, and being able to hit up targets inside 50. So I think the, those are three metrics that in are in most of the modern era, I think, would have stuck up, um, would stack up in terms of being of high importance. Uh, but to paint a bit of picture, mate, it, you know, so you, you said Geelong and Melbourne are the only two this year that have have had the 15 wins, but then also been in the, the top four in, uh, points against in intercept differential and then in the top five for marks inside 50. So in terms of how far we've got to go uh, as a team, where did we finish up in those three? Well, as, as you'd imagine, quite low. So we were 16th in terms of points against, only uh, North and West Coast had more points kicked against them. Uh, 10th for uh, intercept differential and 14th for marks inside 50. So a lot of work to do uh, on that in order to get to that point where you are contending for a, for a premiership and it, in all likelihood it, it's two or three years away at the very least before we're approaching those metrics um, in my view. Yeah, there, there's some pretty pretty sobering thoughts. So maybe to uh, to try and pick things up a little bit. Uh, what about some highlights, mate? What was your, what was your highlight of the season? Oh, it has to be Draper's goal. Uh, it was one of the few games I was actually able to get to for the year and, you know, it wasn't exactly a exhilarating game up to that point, but just to, you know, just be there live and, and watch him running and just, just, you know, he's, he's surely not going to do it. And he just kept going and he, he went around, he got around that, that uh, Gold Coast player and then he, he kicked it, you know, check side, you know, sort of almost running away from goal a little bit. It's the sort of thing people are going to be talking about for years. You know, it's, it's sort of like Watson's jump or uh, Moorcroft's mark or, or Hurdy's goal. People are going to be talking about being there for, for Draper's goal. Uh, for a long time to come. So hopefully, you know, it's it's just a sign of what we're going to get from him uh, throughout the uh, next, you know, seven, eight, nine years of his career that we're going to see more of that. Obviously, we want to see uh, a less of a gap between his best and his worst performances. But yeah, that, that's going to, in, in what's a pretty average year football-wise, that's really going to stick with me. What about yourself? Yeah, I think for me, it was the, the unearthing of some of the young players. I think in, in any season where you don't go deep into September, you you really want to exit the season having found some players that are going to make you better in time. Uh, and I think it's it's even more important when you had a season like we did. So, you know, you, you want to at least walk away going, yeah, didn't go to plan. We didn't have many enough wins, but, but at least we found some players for the future. So, uh, the three for me that that were the the main highlights were I mean they probably speak for themselves but Nick Martin Ben Hobbs and and Massimo D'Ambrosio uh, it wasn't just what they did on the field it was also the passion and the enthusiasm that they played with I I really felt that they they embraced you know being Essendon footballers and and they played with heart and you know we saw 
you know, Nick Martin pull on the jumper and and those kind of things. So, uh, yeah, I think we've got three players there that are going to be long-term players for our footy club. We've spoken about Zerk Thatcher as well. He, he was a real highlight for me too and what he did. And I think, you know, one off field was the um, the the build-up to the the 150th anniversary game against Carlton, what the the show that was put on ahead of that was was pretty remarkable and certainly brought a tear or two to my eye. Yeah, I mean, I you know, seeing just the players, the players come out and just the, the passion of, of the former players, and you know, I think every, everyone still talks about Hurdy's, you know, uh, WWE entrance coming from the, coming from the uh, coming from the smoke and and the like, and, and you know, for as much for as much criticism as Dyson Heffel's got as a player, you know, I think everyone seeing the way he spoke to his team and, and then the past players, you know, obviously didn't exactly work out in terms of result for that game, but, you know, showed just his, his passion and love for the club and, and just bringing all that together. Um, you mentioned those, those players, another one, you know, just seeing Wanganeen getting a debut, obviously coming same, same came onto the list the same way that Nick Martin did um, seeing his, how excited he was to kick a goal, just to be out playing, seeing, seeing the response of his dad Obviously, he was a favourite of both of ours. Um, and the fact that the club showed really strong faith in him by giving him a full two-year contract, um, you know, straight out the gate, I think I'm really looking forward to seeing what he can develop into. Yeah, the the cut to to Gavin in the crowd was was pretty special, wasn't it? That was, yeah, that was a great moment. Yeah. So, I guess one of the things you learn when you have a really bad year is is where, you, where your list is struggling. And I guess... 20, 2022 has really identified a few key areas that we're really struggling in. So obviously small forwards is a big one. Tip and Woody is, is a massive loss. Obviously uh, a lot of the people we approach to try and fill the hole in the list that, that other players departing prior to this year um, didn't, didn't go ahead. Um, obviously we, we, we brought in Wanganin and then we brought in Menzi mid year. Um, neither of those really had much of an impact on the year and I, I mean, people have been looking forward to the Davies for, for quite a while, but particularly Alwyn, you know, it doesn't necessarily seem to be his strength to be a small forward. He, his uh, value may be more up the ground. So it, it's probably still an area we need to address. Uh, midfield depth, we'll probably get into a bit more when we look at what, what we should be focusing on for next year. But I just think it, it's really hard at the moment to to really push some of the some of the, our current midfielders because we don't have that depth of midfield that means that players can be... Uh, held accountable for their for their performances as much. What about you? What are, what are some of the gaps that you've noticed um, from this year? Yeah, I think that the small both of those are, are important. Uh, I've, we've spoken about or I've spoken about midfield depth a lot uh, and small forwards. Are two reasons we we really miss that creativity around goal uh, when the ball hits the ground. We, we just don't have anyone that can turn you know, some, uh, nothing into something. Uh, we also miss that inferred pressure uh, that, you know, you watch uh, Morris Rioli run around and he doesn't get many tackles, uh, but he's a bit like Cyril, you know, uh, he makes opposition defenders wary when they're trying to exit and it ends up with a lot of rushed and pressured kicks. And so we don't have that. And then there, uh, we also lack in that connection between half back and half forward and, and good small forwards have the ability to get up the ground and provide an exit kick, you know, using their speed to put some distance on their opponent and get into some space. So, yeah, we, we really need to address that. I do think we need a big-bodied key defender. I think we, uh, you know, use the example of 
um, uh, oh, you know, like what Ben McKay is able to do at, at North Melbourne, even in a young side, um, you know, just someone that can really lock down on on those big monsters. I don't think Laverde is quite tall enough and big enough to be able to do that. Um, you know, take let's take Alex Pierce. So, you know, he was someone as a free agent I was really keen on. I know he's since re-signed at Fremantle, but I reckon if you had to put him into our side this year and shifted Laverde around a little bit uh, and, and allowed him to play on the second tall, I reckon we might have won a couple more games this year. I, I think we would have looked a lot more compact down back. So I really think we need to bring in a big-bodied key defender to give Reid the opportunity to develop. Uh, I think we need to add skill and, and outside and two-way runners. That sort of, you know, some of those will be midfielders anyway. It kind of addresses two um, two points there. And I think we need some experience. Uh, you know, we've, we've lost Hurley. We've lost Waller. We've lost Devin Smith. Uh, there's a fair bit of experience that's gone out of the door there. So, yeah, I really think we need to look at bringing in some experience into the list. Yeah, I think there's, there's definitely a space to, for, you know, the, the Luke Hodge, Jordan Lewis type type player that comes in to, you know, fill, fill, fill a role and, you know, almost act as an on-field coach. You know, it'd be, it'd be great to have a, a James Kelly type, you know, like we had in 2016 and 2017 uh, back on the ground there. But let's look at the best 22 for, for next year. And we're not going to name the best 22. We're, we're going to talk about who we consider to be locks in the side and then how much space that leaves for other players to, to take their opportunity. So uh, for me, the, the the players that, you know, given everyone being fit, are guaranteed of starting next year uh, from the back line, uh, McGrath, Laverty, uh, Redmond and Ridley uh, across the centre line, uh, Langford, I would push him to a wing, uh, Parrish and then Draper, Shield and Cordwell as the followers. Uh, and then in the forward line, uh, Stringer, uh, Merritt, as as you sort of said, I, I like him in that string of handover role. And then uh, Peter Wright at full forward. Um, so my view, there are 10 spots in the best 22 up for grabs next year. So, Jono, which of those uh, ones that I've pointed out there do you disagree on? And is there anyone I've missed that you would consider to be a lock? Yeah, I'd, I'd probably have Jones as a, a lock if he's fit. I think he's he's shown enough that he's got enough ability to be a forward of the future and we just need to get games. He'll have peaks and troughs in his form, but I think he's he's got all the, the raw attributes to be a really good key forward for us. So he's a lock for me uh, going forward uh, of the young players. I think we just need to get him in. Uh, the, the two that I'm a watch on in terms of their position in the side or three actually uh Laverde and, and Ridley I don't necessarily think they're going to get pushed out but maybe their roles would change if we did recruit a, a big body key defender I think Laverde could then slide into that second tall role play a bit more like Stephen May does at times play off his man a little bit more intercept uh yeah be a bit more aggressive or or he could even slip into the role that Kelly's been playing this year on small to medium forwards i think he's he's quite versatile so i think yeah I, i'm a watch on on what you know trade and and recruitment does in terms of that and then the other one i i find a bit interesting is is Langford. I'm, I'm curious to see how he fits in going forward mostly in terms of his role not necessarily whether or not he's got a spot uh you know is it forward or is it wing is it both if for example, someone like Serha was to come in, we're, we're being linked to him and, and apparently put a big deal in front of him. That probably pushes Langford out of the forward line when you consider that we've got 
Jones, Wright, Stringer as as locks and then Zerha, and then we need to get some ground level players in and around them. So then we look at the wings and, you know, we've got Nick Martin and Durham coming through. You know, where does that leave Langford? I, I think it's a, a curious one and, and and what role he plays next year. So I guess I'm a, I'm not putting lines through any of those guys, but but I'm a watch through there. And and then obviously the the big omission that you've left out is is Heppel. And, uh, you know, we've spoken about that earlier. Yeah, I think this year we've probably been hamstrung a bit by him being captain. I think there's, there's probably been points where he could have been, if he was just a player, he could have been dropped and then he could reshuffle, uh, you know, a lot of players around. It was noticeable that when he moved to the wing, for example, that our, our defense improved. Uh, but then, you know, you, particularly when Langford came back into the side, you were trying to find spots for Langford, Durham, Martin and Heppel and running them through the wing. Uh, yeah. So I think I don't have him as a lock. I think he definitely could play all, he definitely could play, he's definitely good enough to play all, all the games next season if, if he's, if he's fit and, and going. Um, but I don't have him as a lock from that end. And I guess obviously there's the players we pick up in the trade period that may leapfrog those in the side. As you sort yeah. of pointed out with, with Zerha there. Yeah, no, fair, fair point. Yeah. I think well, I think there's a lot of water to go under the bridge still, isn't there, before we can, you know, who's going to coach us is, is the big one and then and then what happens in, in trade and draft periods. So, yeah, I think that's one that we'll, we'll revisit uh, after those periods. Absolutely. So let's move on to our final main point, which is, you know, you let's say you're the new coach, you know, if they're, they're desperate enough and they, they pick either of us to be the new coach. Um, I don't know if you've been getting your application ready, but, you know, I've just been, you know, uh, polishing my CV, you know, just on the off chance that they're, they're interested. Uh, but what are the things that you'd be looking to do to improve the side? What are the things a new coach needs to address? Yeah, I, I think between us, we, we had a fair bit of overlap when we went away and did this exercise. So I think we've narrowed it down to, to sort of six key points, uh, I think. Uh, first three of those for me are uh, putting more time into the opposition and, and, you know, we need to stop getting beaten by what we know. I think too often we've let opposition coaches dictate to us on matchups and tactics and just let the game flow and, and get out of hand too much. I think the, the Giants game was the, the the best or worst example, in fact, of that where we just allowed the Giants to to completely dictate all the tactics of the day. Uh, you know, they, they dragged our half-backs away from the contest. They didn't change up Merritt's role. They didn't change up Stringer's role. You know, it took to that Brisbane game till we tried to do something to, to stop an opposition midfielder. Uh, you know, mentioned a number of times previously about the way that opposition half-back just continued to cut us up. So I think, yeah, too often we haven't done our, our enough to – to restrict what the opposition's good at or, or, or and, and allow them to get the game on their terms. Uh, I'd, I'd really like to see more consequences for players who don't run both ways and, and don't do enough defensively. I think that needs to be in place regardless of, you know, their age, their experience or the position on their ground, on the ground that, um, that they play. And, you know, we saw Shield get highlighted in the media a lot this year because of it. But, you know, he wasn't the only one, even someone like Nick Martin, uh, who obviously did a lot right this year and, and has, uh, you know, he he has a long way to go in terms of his defensive running. He's a good runner, but he's really slow to react and to get into position. And, and that's something that we, we've spoken about, you know, sort of halfway through the year. So I think, um, you know, I'd really like to see a new coach come in and say, you know, that's not acceptable, whether you're Dylan Shield or you're Nick Martin and, and you're out of the side till you get that right. Yeah, and I think as as we sort of hinted on earlier, a lot of that relies on the depth of the players uh, coming up behind them in the VFL. It's, it's been pretty obvious this year that we don't have the depth, particularly in midfielders. Um, 
that that could you know put pressure on on the the main the main players in in that area. And uh, for those of you on Twitter, uh, Anthproc on Twitter, he put out a really good list of players who are potentially gettable to add depth in in particular areas. So uh, players that I think are, are potentially gettable that that could help there are players like Bytel from St Kilda, uh, someone like Setterfield from Carlton uh, seems to be you know mostly on the outs there. In, in his role could be someone to approach as well. But there's a lot of players out there that, that have been brought up that, you know, aren't necessarily going to be the difference between, you know, winning a grand final or, or finishing bottom, but you're just going to add to that, that strength of, of the club and, and allow for, um, allow for those standards to be, to be uh, created and maintained. Yeah. And that sort of segues into to my third point. Uh, and that is, it requires more midfield depth. I think more midfield depth helps with that two-way running uh, and having, you know, better um, and more frequent midfield rotations. Uh, we just can't keep running with four midfielders against five or six. We'll continue to get blown out in games against good sides, and, and we saw that this year. So I really hope that that we can, A, add depth to that part of the ground and then also, you know, implement that on game day. So, yeah, they're my three, mate. What about you? Uh, so the big one for me is the fitness of the playing group. Uh, I think, and it seems that it's already come out, you know, again, you, you're basing it on on media reports, but it does seem like Marnie sent the message to the playing group that they, they need to be coming back in ripping condition. You know, a lot of talk about trying to set PBs for a lot of those fitness metrics for them. And that's something that the new coach will, will need to reinforce. It's, it's one of those things that separates the, the top sides from from the lower sides. They can they can perform at their best for longer, and that's what fitness that's what fitness does. It it allows you to to do do your your best work uh, for longer periods of time, and it's the team that can do their best work uh, for the longer period of time that more likely wins the match. The next one is defensive cohesion. So you need to identify key players and making sure they're playing enough together so they're able to trust in each other to do the team defensive thing. So an example of that, let, let's say that Redmond. Redmond is, is heading towards a contest and you see Ridley is is going up in that contest. Redmond stays down. He doesn't he doesn't fly into that pack because he he has enough trust in Ridley that Ridley's going to be able to, to spoil that contest, which then allows him to, to stay down and stop an opposition player from from crumbing the ball and kicking a goal. Too often we see, you know, three or four players fly, fly at a ball where you know the opposite a couple of players in the opposition stay down and they they get a, a pretty easy ball for a shot on goal. So that's and that that sort of plays into that defensive system and defensive structure that will need to be developed. The other thing that really I think needs to happen is to shut out the outside noise. Uh, I think too often Essendon's being reactive to what is being said outside the club. Uh, really want them to. I talked about it. I've talked about this a couple of times this year, but and they didn't do it with Rutten. But they need to they need to identify a path that they feel is going to be successful, and they need to stick with it for a period of time. And allow the players to gain a trust in that system. If you keep chopping and changing, and you're not showing that you have a commitment to that uh, that process, you're not going to get the buy-in from the players, and you're not going to get the outcomes that you're looking for from that system. So that that would be my final point there. Yeah, I think that's almost the the most important one, mate. I think, uh, yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. So, yeah. Good. Well, look, we've we've gone through a lot uh, this evening, but we'll we'll go into our final thought. And I guess, how's the last how's the last couple of weeks made you feel about the Essendon Football Club moving forward? Where where is your head at? Yeah, I I feel better about things. I, and as of Friday, I, was it last Friday? I think the the statement came out from from David Barham in terms of the the subcommittee. So 
from that moment on, I, I really felt that we're giving ourselves the best possible chance to get our house in order. I think uh, our, our, our club is only going to be successful on field if we get the back office right and, and everyone's pulling in the same direction. And I, I think we're, we're finally putting a bit of a, a stake in the ground and uh, under David's leadership to, to say that we're going to do it and we're going to do it properly and we're going to take the time to do it. I, I like that we haven't sort of panicked. We haven't rushed out to try and appease someone like Ross Lyon. We're, we're taking the time that we do have to do this methodically and, and, and do it properly. So yeah, I, I feel good. Uh, yeah. I feel better, mate. I, I guess that the, there's still a lot of water to go under the bridge, but I, I really do feel better about things um, and, and a lot more satisfied about the direction we're heading in than I was, you know, say this time a week or two ago. Yeah. I think, as, as you sort of say, that there does seem to be a clear path forward. And, you know, obviously we'll have to see the outcome of that. And you probably you imagine they would appoint the coach um, the week following grand final before the trade period starts. Uh, so we'll, we'll probably have more of an, an idea about where the club's going from there. But I think, you know, it, it'd be difficult for them to appoint any coach that it's going to, you know, not have people feeling positive moving forward from there. So, yeah, as you say, it, it does seem like they are trying to get the whole uh, take a whole club approach to getting to getting improvement and not just relying on on one or two areas. So, you know, if if the review goes well and they get that right, then hopefully, you know, in a couple of years' time, we're talking about we're, we're not doing this show, we're not doing this postseason review uh, week one of the finals. We're doing it uh, in October after we've won a premiership. So, yeah, that that's where I that's where I've ended up at. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense, mate. I, yeah, uh, I agree. Well, yeah, thanks, uh, thanks to everyone who's um, you know reached out with messages, asked questions in the last couple of weeks. Thanks to the people that have given us encouragement and support. Thanks to those that have left reviews on on Apple Podcasts. That that really does help. Uh, yeah, help our growth and help other people find us and and you know build the Don the Stack community, which is yeah the the main reason that we're doing this. So. Yeah, thanks to to everyone for those contributions. And as always, mate, thank you for your help and your support and all the work that you've done uh, putting this together, uh, particularly whilst you've got a, uh, a newborn in the house, mate. So, yeah, really appreciate it as always and, and it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. It's same same to you. I think I've, I've learned so much doing this with you uh, and, yeah, just the just the interactions with, with you, just just uh, talk talking with each other. Obviously, it, it's... It's been really good for from football perspective, but also just from our, our friendship perspective, you know, to sort of strengthen that as well. Uh, that that's something that that I, I really cherish now. Um, so thank you for that. Um, and yeah, just as as you sort of say, that general the general community that we've built, um, the people who we're interacting with, uh, really positive, really positive interactions. And you know, we're, we're learning a lot from the community as well. Um, we're taking a lot away away from that. There's there's so many people out there with really good ideas. Um, really good, really good perspectives on things that, you know, make me think about how I view the game as well. So I, I really encourage people to keep doing that. And next week is a really good opportunity for the community to get involved because it's our, our Q&A episode building on what we've talked about this week. If you've got any further questions about things we've discussed tonight or uh, you've got a question about something you think we, we should have discussed that we didn't bring up, uh, you can get involved with that. So you can submit a question beforehand. You can either uh, ask us on Twitter um, or you can email our Don the Stat account at donthestat at gmail.com. Uh, we'll also be doing uh, 
the Q&A episode live through Twitter spaces. So if you want to participate live and, and ask your question, uh, speak, speak your question live, you can, you can join the live Twitter spaces, which uh, Jono will promote uh, next week uh, and, and participate yourself and, and maybe give your own perspectives as well, which as again, which we really find interesting. Yes. Yeah, what I mate. Uh, yeah. Well said. Uh, looking forward to that one next week. And yeah, thanks again to everyone who's listened in and, and made it all the way to the end. Absolutely. Long, long recording for us. And I think it's going to end up being a long listen for everyone. Uh, go Dons. Cheers, mate.